Let's pray as we get started this morning. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Father, be with us now. Open our hearts, our minds, our spirits as we study your word, Father. Remove all encumbrances. Just let us hear you clearly. Praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we're just going to uh, continue with the study through the book of Matthew that uh, Mike has been on. I would like to start, however, for our contact in a couple of verses that Mike taught us uh, a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 9. So I've turned back to Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to start reading in verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus is looking at the chosen nation. And what does he see? He sees not that they appear to feel blessed, rather they feel distressed. They're not buoyed by the presence of the Spirit. They're devoid of the presence of the Spirit. They are, like Jesus says, like sheep without a shepherd. And our Lord has compassion on Israel. He gathers the disciples beginning in chapter 10. Mike covered this last week. And he is going to send them out with some on-the-job training in the ministry they are to have. And so this week, you and I are going to cover uh, verses 5 through 15 as Christ Jesus prepares the disciples for this ministry <coughs> training that he's going to give them. Now, what we're going to see is three things. First, to whom is he going to send them? Second, what is going to be the nature of their mission? And finally, how are they going to pay their way? And then we'll draw some conclusions for the mission that he has for us. So let's begin in chapter 10, reading in verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so the very first thing that Christ Jesus does is he limits the physical territory that the disciples are supposed to cover. Now, if you take my body, it's kind of the long, slender profile of Israel, right about where my pocket here is on my uh, upper torso would be the Sea of Galilee. And my 
upper torso, my whole chest, would be the region that was called Galilee. To the west, over here, we have the Great Sea. North, about right here, are two major Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon. If I move around over here, on the east side, there is the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. And as we head further down the Jordan, out here are ten large Greek cities called the Decapolis. To the south, where my main torso is, is Samaria. And so Jesus has drawn a boundary around Galilee, and he has told the disciples, stick to this geographic area. Go to the house of Israel first. Why this priority to the Jews? The answer to that question is as old as Scripture itself. If we turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, Moses is speaking to Israel. And Moses says to them, beginning in verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. God makes a promise and he keeps it. In Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul has three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where he rehearses the entire spiritual history of Israel. And when he gets to chapter 11, he talks about the fact that at, at this present time, Israel seems to have been rejected by God, but in fact what God has done is he has broken off unbelieving branches and grafted in wild olive branches, you and me. But what Paul reminds the Romans of is that the root of God's olive, branch, olive tree is still Israel. And he says, I'm reading uh, in chapter 11 now, verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God keeps a promise. That's not the only reason that Jesus would have sent his disciples to Israel first. If we just turn back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 9, the beginning of this three-chapter trilogy on Israel, Paul speaking of his fellow Jews begins in verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. 
who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Israel was the nation most prepared to receive the message of the kingdom. And so Jesus sent his disciples there first. Now, again, this has nothing to do with um, favoritism. It is a question of priority. Last week, about this time, I was on a business trip, and I landed in uh, Heathrow Airport in London, and I was trying to make my way through uh, passport control to uh, catch a flight onto Scotland. And they were moving slowly. The, there weren't enough of uh, the passport control guys there, and so the line is just creeping along to the point that at around 8 o'clock, my flight was at 9.30, at around 8 o'clock, some people began asking the lady that was in charge, are we going to make our plane? What time's your plane? 8.30. And so she says, how many people in our line have the 8.30 flight? I looked around, and it was like everyone but me. And so she says, will anyone not on the 8.30 flight please step back so these other people can get through? Grumble. What was she doing, however? She wasn't showing favoritism towards them. She was simply rearranging this line so that she could achieve her objective, which was that everyone make their flights. In fact, uh, in a couple of minutes, a couple of more of the passport control folks showed up, and she immediately grabbed me and stuck me back in the line so that uh, I could get to where I needed to be. This is the same thing we're seeing here. I'm still in Romans. If you'll turn back to chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul says the same thing we have just discussed. He says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there may be priority, but there is no partiality with God. And so Jesus sends his disciples to Israel first. Now, does that mean that everyone else just gets ignored? No, the boundary that he had set was a geographic boundary. Notice that even in the book of Matthew, as, as we just kind of thumb back through what we've already covered in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, Christ the child is welcomed by magi, by wise men who were Gentiles. If you go over to Matthew chapter 4, you find that in Jesus' early ministry, he is fulfilling... Old Testament prophecy, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, where was Jesus preaching? In Galilee of the nations. And that word nations usually means non-Jewish nations, the Gentiles. 
If you look at the end of chapter 4, we see in verse 24, news about him spread through all Syria. Or down in verse 25, large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis in Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a spot in time. That's the Sermon on the Mount. But as soon as we get to chapter 8 and Jesus begins his ministry, one of his earliest encounters is when he heals the servant of a Roman centurion. And then right after that, still in chapter 8 of Romans, we see Jesus deliver two men from the eastern Greek side of the Sea of Galilee from demon possession. Jesus has not forgotten us. Israel is his priority. Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. They're as if they had no shepherd at all. When they go, what are they to say? I'm back in Matthew chapter 10 now. And I'm reading verses 7 and 8. And as you go, preach or proclaim, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. What are the disciples to do? The exact same thing that Christ Jesus was doing since he started his ministry to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to perform signs validating that proclamation. Now Jesus says to them, proclaim the kingdom. Both the Hebrew word used in the Old Testament and the Greek word used in the New Testament that are translated kingdom in the large majority of their uses in Scripture refer to <coughs> reign and not realm. That is, this word kingdom talks about the power that Christ is exercising, not his possessions, not his, not his uh, geographic kingdom. And so the first thing we see is that this kingdom refers to power. What kingdom of power? Actually, the kingdom that Christ Jesus is talking about here, D.A. Carson reminds us in his commentary on Matthew, is a subset of the larger kingdom over which Christ Jesus had control. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, he says, I have been given authority over all, both in heaven and and on earth. That means believers and unbelievers. Just as Paul noted in the uh, second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, there will be a day when every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and proclaim Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. So, in actuality, Christ has authority over all. But what he is speaking of here when he talks about the proclamation of the kingdom is a subset of that global authority. If you'll look in Matthew chapter 9, we can uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, we can see an example of this. 
it's actually a, um, a teaching that uh, in Matthew appears in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm, I'm in Mark chapter 9 in verse 47. I'm sorry, verse 45. First, Jesus says, If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And then down in 47, he says, If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Jesus here equates this subset of which he speaks of the kingdom of God with life. That is, it is not all of those people who are under his authority. That's everyone. It is all of those people who have accepted his authority and recognized him as their Lord. It is, Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke call it the kingdom of God, but parallel passages between the Gospels show us that they're actually speaking of the same thing. And Jesus says one more thing they are to preach about this kingdom. He says you are to say it is at hand. What does he mean by that? I have a little timeline drawn up on the slide here that you can see that sort of shows us where the kingdom of heaven fits into all of biblical history. If we begin in Genesis chapter 1 and work our way up to Revelation chapter 20, somewhere around the great white throne judgment, we have the history of man. Now, into that history of man, God has inserted himself by taking on human flesh in the form of Christ Jesus. It was at that moment when Jesus entered the world that initiated the kingdom of heaven. We're in Matthew chapter 10. I'm moving over just a little to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus once again heals a man who is demon-possessed. And when he does, sorry. When he does, in verse 24, the Pharisees say, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Jesus looks at them and says, do you realize how silly what you just said is? Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. And then notice what Jesus says. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The instant Jesus entered our realm, the kingdom of God initiated. It is here already, but it is complete, not yet. 
the kingdom of God will continue through the end of human history at what point it will be consummated, for example, as foretold by Isaiah in chapter 65, where he speaks of the same thing that John saw in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The, the kingdom of God is eternal, but it is already here. And so, they are to proclaim the kingdom of God. They are to perform healing miracles. Now, these healing miracles are duplicates of what Christ Jesus is doing. We won't go there this morning, but if you look in chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35, there are two verses that are almost identical that speak of Jesus going throughout the land, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and performing healing miracles. And all he is asking right now is for the disciples to do the same. And how are they to do it? Freely you have received, freely give. Now in just a minute, when we finish up through verse 15, as he gives them further instructions, he will tell the disciples, a workman is worthy of his wages. Well then why does he say give away freely? Probably for the same reason that Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I'm compelled to share the gospel. And though, although it is proper for me to accept compensation, I don't ask for it. Why? Because Paul is preaching grace and he doesn't want the message of grace to get mixed up somehow with him receiving a salary. So what Jesus says to the disciples is you and me as laypersons getting to see the minister's side of this equation. And on the minister's side of the equation, freely you have received, freely give. On our side of the equation, the workman is worthy of his wages. So we are to compensate our ministers for the work that they do for us, but the ministers aren't supposed to do it from their side of the equation for the compensation. They are to preach as if it were free so that you and I have no confusion about the grace that God sheds on us. And then finally, it's time to pack. Verses 10 through 15. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm beginning in 9. Jesus says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the workman is worthy of his support. Now, when he says don't acquire these things, the word can also mean don't acquire additional copies of these things. What he's trying to say is you don't need two coats and three suitcases and all of this. There's no time for that. In fact, in Luke's version of these instructions, they are told not even to stop and talk to people they meet on the road. They are supposed to cover all the cities of Israel. There's no time for distractions. So, so uh, Jesus goes on and he says, And whatever city or village you enter, 
inquire not who has the biggest house, but who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. The greeting we were told in Luke is this, peace to this house. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your, your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your works as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Offer your blessing. If it's rejected, then shake the dust of that city off your feet. When a pious Jew left Gentile territory and re-entered Israel, he might, as soon as he entered Israel, cleanse himself. Just get rid of the dust on his person, the dust on his clothes. The significance was, I have left behind this pagan nation that is about to receive the judgment of God. Imagine the impression this would leave on a city in Israel being told that they were no better than the pagans and they should expect the judgment of God. There's more to the instructions that Jesus has. In fact, for several Sundays to come, we'll continue in this, but let's stop right here and see what conclusions we can draw for our personal lives and the commission of spreading the gospel that Jesus has left with you and me. The first thing I want to say is, I want to emphasize this business about priority versus favoritism. I'm going to Romans chapter 3 just to indicate that everyone, Jew and Greek alike, comes to salvation the same way. Notice the subject of Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 3, looking at verse 1. He says, what then is the advantage of the Jew? And his argument is, none at all. Look again in verse 9. What then, are we better than they, us Jews? Not at all, for we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Going over to verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as he continues the sentence, all are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And finally, he says this, is God the God of Jews only? Verse 29, is he not the God of Gentiles only? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, uh, the God who will justify the circumcised by faith also since, uh, and the uncircumcised by faith is one. There is priority. There is no prejudice in the mind of God. Secondly, let's remember the charge that Jesus gave the disciples. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 9, we have the parallel 
to the passage that we just read in Matthew where he sends out the disciples. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus then sends out a group of 70 individuals. He gives them the same authority. He gives them the same instructions as he did the disciples. They go out and their, their um, training is just incredibly successful. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And at this point, Jesus says, you think that's something. You should have seen what I saw. While you were in the sphere of the earth, I, Jesus, could see the larger battle that was taking place in heaven. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What a spiritual high. But don't lose the big picture. In verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, Do not rejoice that the spirits, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's a spiritual high. Finally, there's this. The distraction that is, was open to the disciples is the same distraction that you and I can undergo. We are to be about sharing the gospel with the world around us. And there are so many other things to occupy our time. But even if we can break past these worldly distractions, we still need to maintain our focus. As Mike led us in song this morning. There is nothing more honorable for us to do than to wake up in the morning and to say, Come, Lord Jesus. And we get excited about the second coming of Christ. But let's understand this. He's already come once. And when he did, he inaugurated his kingdom. And it is that kingdom message that we are to be sharing now. We don't need to wait until someone tells us there's only a week till Jesus comes and we panic and start sharing with our neighbors. The kingdom is active now. We have work to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, charge. This is an awesome charge father and we certainly don't feel prepared to do it empower us with your spirit father remove all distractions keep us focused so that we can tell others the kingdom of heaven is at hand we pray all of this in the name of the king Christ Jesus. Amen.